the process that we're in now is we're in that, that incubation, that womb period where the baby is starting to get uh, like a head and starting to grow arms and fingers and organs that's going to be able to keep that baby alive when the baby pops out of its mom. And that's the process that we are in now. So if we are building, if you let me cross um, that, D, that DNA into who we are. And the core of that DNA is the core four values um, that are on the banner, which now stays up behind me. Uh, if you weren't here, which was... Come on, come on. Look at this. What? I don't know if you know, but this was like balancing... This is like balancing a plate on a pencil before. Uh, you had to like hold your tongue right, and, and uh, we just had it backwards. And that was, you know what, once, once we found that out, well, I, we, because we're a team, that's why I say we. Once we found, once we found that out, like we could have just closed shop last week. I was like, I just had church, I am worshiping because that stays up there like that. Because I probably have momentarily lost my religion in trying, in trying to get this up before. But the four values at the bottom of that banner are what we're all about. That's who we're going to be about. Uh, hopefully we won't look like this two years from now, three years from now. I can't predict to you exactly what we'll look like five years from now. But I can tell you that whatever we're doing, whatever it looks like, if you slice it in half, that's going to be what we're doing. That's going to be the reason why we're doing whatever we're doing. Because we love Jesus and he has saved us because we respond to that and worship to him with our whole lives. And tonight we're going to talk about community. If you've been here the past couple weeks, this humor me, we're going to hit a lot of the same stuff. But I've been telling the guys that have been here, um, this is something I don't believe we can hit too often in the Western church. In, in, in America today, um, there, there are people that love Jesus. There are people who are trying to worship God with their whole lives. But the idea of community runs counterintuitive to the way that we live as Americans. And it absolutely runs counterintuitive to the way that most of us do church. When I say the word church, what do you guys think of? An hour to go A steeple? A steeple? <laughs> absolutely. Uh, a, a place you go for hour, two hours, Sunday morning. Right. <laughs> and you walk in with a bunch of people and you're, you're smiling and, hi, how are you doing? Hello, brother, how are you? That's great. Hi, brother. I'm smiling because everything's great in my life. How are you? Everything's well together. Thank you. And that's, that's what church looks like because there is so, it's so surfacy. And another reason is we don't really understand the gospel. So we think that we have to, like everything has to be going all right in order to be believers. Like we have to have our lives together and everything has to be kind of tucked in the right corner. We have to be kind of good looking people. And so like what happens is a lot of people come into that church meeting that I just described and they see a bunch of like kind of preppy-ish kind of people that kind of have it together. And they say, I'm not one of those guys. I don't have anything in common with and there's no touch point for them to figure out that, that we are actually our messes. Like that's what we truly are. But the problem is a lot of Christians don't understand the gospel. And they think it's my behavior, it's my works, it's my actions that keep me in right standing before God. And it's not the fact that I 
am, my righteousness, my goodness is nothing but filthy rags before God. And it's only Jesus Christ and His righteousness that keeps me in my standing. That's what saved me by putting faith and trust in His goodness and His sacrifice on my behalf. And it's that same thing that saved me that keeps me righteous before Him today. And that's what is going to enable us to not be so fake when we are around each other. But when we think about church, we think it's like that hour, that two hours that we're around the people and we're smiling and they're smiling, we're shaking hands and we sing songs. Maybe you raise your hand depending on what church you know, you're know you in, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Charismatic, <laughs> depending on where you're at. This is kind of your expression and that's what you do when you go home. That's church. That is not the biblical concept of what church is. When Jesus was on earth, in John 17, he was heading to the cross. That's what was set on his, he was right around the corner. And he prayed a prayer. It's one of the few prayers of Jesus that we have that's recorded. And the subject of that prayer is still absolutely, every time I read it, every time I think about it, it's absolutely fascinating. This is what he prayed. He said, Father, well, we'll look at it, John 17. Is that a season? Yes. yes. Oh, sorry. I think there was another one. I think you chased it a while. John 17, verse 20. Jesus is praying for us. Some people have said that this should actually be called the Lord's Prayer because what we call the Lord's Prayer is actually him teaching the disciples how to pray. But this is actually what he prayed. I'm not saying that I don't really care what you call it, but some people have said that. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, that's talking of the disciples that were with him, but also for those who, by the way, the disciples were a qualified, qualified mess, unqualified mess. I don't know what, they were a mess. They were not the cream of the crop. If you're looking to like recruit a team of people that are going to turn the world upside down, a bunch of stupid, selfish fishermen from Galilee, which is the equivalent of Aner, is not the group of people that you're going to go to. But that's who he has with him, which should give us great hope. Verse 21, this is what he prays, that they may, be, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Listen to that. So he's praying that we would be one. He's praying that we would be have unity, right? But what's the measure of unity that he's praying that we would have? Is he, the same oneness. The same oneness that he and the Father enjoy, which, by the way, is pretty close oneness. I mean, that's pretty intimate. So that, and this is the reason that he wants, that he wants us to live like that. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he, then he keeps on saying the same thing. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be what? One. One, even as what? We are one. We are one. And then he tells them how that's going to happen. I in them and you and me. So he's saying, the unity that you, Father, and I have had since before the foundation of the world 
I want you to pull these people into that communion. There's a theological term called perichoresis, and it's the picture of the eternal dance of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, loving and enjoying and communicating with each other throughout all of eternity. The Father, the Son, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Father, back and forth in this eternal dance that's been going on and enjoying His Godness. And He's inviting and calling and asking the Father that He would bring us into that fellowship so that they may become perfectly one. So that, why? The world may know that you sent me and you loved them even as you love me. That's Jesus' prayer for us, for the church. And then we see something amazing happen in response to Jesus' prayer. Look at Acts chapter 2. Now these jokers, these... Um, not the opposite of the cream of the crop, the kind of bottom of the barrel kind of guys. Not Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to read this first part and we're going to skip down uh, further on. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is after Jesus has left. And he's left them alone. Can you imagine? Like That's like... If you own a business and you have a bunch of kind of jokers that work for you and they don't quite understand what's going on, uh, they, they end up arguing all the time about who's going to be in charge, like who's going to be second in command, who's going to be vice president, who's more important to the company, who makes more, who's going to make more, who shouldn't make more, like all this stuff. And then like you say, all right, I'm checking out and I'm leaving you guys in charge. Like that would make me somewhat uncomfortable. I'm not describing my business. I'm just saying in general, you know, if that was the case. Like, can you imagine Jesus leaves that crew in charge in the upper room? But something happens. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Freaky church service, by the way. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Ah, Jesus had promised, I'm going to send you. Something. I'm going to send you some one. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Skip down, they, uh, Peter stands up and he preaches a, a sermon to them. He gives them a simple explanation of the gospel, who Jesus was and what he had done. Now look at verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, interestingly enough, um, 
Jesus, while he would draw great crowds, every time he would say something difficult, the crowds would leave him. So he, would, he was like the opposite of a, what we would call a successful church planner. He builds up this large church. There's like thousands of people come in. And then he would say something that would just drive his uh, elder board crazy. Because he, he would say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, don't, you can't be my disciple. And everybody would freak out and they would all leave. And like next week, it's like 15 people. And he would turn to his <laughs> disciples and say, hey, you guys want to leave too? Like, like he's inviting, baiting them. This is your app. Don't you want to go? I'm saying crazy stuff. So every time he says something difficult and hard, people leave him. They follow him because he's doing miracles. And he's like turning five loaves and two fish into a banquet, and, which is pretty cool stuff. But this time, Peter gets up and he gives this gospel message. In the end, he says... It's the same Jesus that you killed. He's not playing softball with them. And this is what happens. This is the change after the Holy Spirit came. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's sort of the opposite of the way we often do um, you know, come to Jesus thing, right? Yeah. Some churches do the every head bowed and every eye closed and no one's going to look around and put your hand up and some of it's just like you just have to check something on a card and you turn it in and it's not a very you know, this some, some churches feel like they have to conjole you and convince you and you know, get the music going right so it kind of gets you all excited. This, the effect that it had on their hearts they came to them and asked them, what can we do? In verse 38, Peter said to them, this is what you do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, and for your children, and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness the preachers like that part. With many other words, he bore witness and continued <laughs> to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, so this is the beginning of what Jesus had prayed for. And look what this new, this is a, we're talking about birthing a church. This is what this church that had been birthed, these people that he was praying for, looked like. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That word fellowship there is not the Christian word fellowship that we use. Like, we're going to get together, we're going to have fellowship, we're going to um, um, fellowship. What did you guys do today? Well, we had lunch and we fellowship together. Nothing wrong with saying that, but people who aren't like a part of the church sometimes look at us like, what, what do you mean you fellowship? That's kind of a... It doesn't, I don't think that means what you think it means. Well, that word there is a Greek word. It's called koinonia. And it means a deep, intimate participation with each other. It's not just a walking in and, hi, I'm Randy. Everything's great. Nice to meet you. <laughs> how, how are things with you? Oh, great. That's great. Awesome. Well, I'll see you later. Have a great day. 
So that's, <laughs> that's, that is, that is people knowing your business and you knowing other people's business. That's knowing somebody well enough that you can tell when they walk in the room that things just aren't quite right because you've been around them enough to know what they look like when they're happy. It's being willing to be free and open with other people about your mess because you know that your right standing before God, your right standing before them, your right standing before the church is not based upon whether the fact that you have all your junk together or not. To the breaking of bread. That means they were actually having meals together. It, the most commentators on this, on this section say it certainly means that they were having, sharing the communion table together. And that's going to be a key part about what we do at Docs. We're going to do that hopefully every, every service. We're going to share communion together. But it also means that they were actually sitting down and having meals together. There's an intimacy that comes from having a meal with somebody. That's different than just meeting somebody across a desk from each other. When you see they got a piece of spinach caught right here, and you have to decide, do I tell them and embarrass them, or do I just let it go? Like, that's the beginning of intimacy. When, you, when, you're, when you're around somebody enough, and they're smacker, or they're, you know, they, they make, you know, noisy eaters? You know noisy eaters? Noisy eaters drive me crazy. It's just, it just absolutely drives me nuts. But you know what? That's the part. And the prayers, that means they were praying for each other, they were praying with each other, and they were worshiping. And this is what life looked like for them. And awe came upon every soul. Do you know why that awe came upon everyone? Because someone capital S, was in their midst. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together, they were together. That's an interesting phrase. It doesn't say they got together. It says they were together. They understood that they were united in Jesus. That they had a new identity. And that new identity involved a new father. God the Father. And that new identity involved having a new older brother, Jesus Christ. And if your dad is God the Father, and your dad is God the Father, and my dad is God the Father, what does that make us? Siblings. Makes us siblings. They were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their position. Why did they have all things in common? How? How could you get a group of people together that would be willing to have all things in common? Do you know why? First of all, Things didn't matter quite as much as they used to because, because they had found a new identity in Jesus Christ. And they had found that he was worth 
everything. And whatever it was before that they worshipped, that they considered to be of ultimate value, because we all pick something of ultimate value and we worship that thing. Whatever it was before that they considered to be of value to them no longer seemed to carry the same shine. It might have been possessions. It might have been, um, it might have been religious rituals. Some of us find value in being important in church and, and uh, having the people all around me. I can put on a smile well enough that everybody around me thinks that, man, I'm just the greatest guy. And I worship at that idol. Or it could be whatever. In America, it's about looks, it's about possessions, it's about money, it's about status. It could be about all kinds of things. I know some people with some crazy weird idols, but we all pick something that's of value. When we find something that's of value, we bend our lives around it and we worship it. And when that changes, the things that we own just lose a little bit of their sheen and their shine. And the Holy Spirit had entered their hearts and had given them love for each other like God had for them. See, I don't expect you to love me with your ability to love me because you probably have a limited ability to love and if you get around me long enough, you find out there's limited amount there to love. But God loves me not because of what I do, but because of a value that he places on me through the work of Jesus Christ. And that is a different kind of unconditional love. If I tell you to love me unconditionally, you can't, you can't do it. But if God's love has been spread, spread abroad in your heart and you have personally realized that God has canceled a debt that you could never pay, then man, your heart opens to other people. And even if they're annoying, because the church is full of annoying people, even if they never get their stuff together, if they never get their stuff together, if they are always complaining about that same thing and asking us to pray for that same thing they were asking us to pray for three years ago, I can still love them. Now they can still annoy me but I can love them. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, that's the large gatherings, and breaking bread in their homes, that's small gatherings, what we're going to call community groups. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Some people are glad, and some people are generous. You rarely see people who are glad and generous. You see people, you see people who give, who give because they want uh, you to look at them and think they're awesome. They give because it gives them a certain amount of notoriety. They give because they feel they have to. And you see people that are glad. They're just glad. I have this awesome house. I have this awesome car. I can afford this awesome food. And I am so glad that God has provided this for me. But people who are glad and generous 
are people whose lives have been t- turned upside down by the gospel. Praising God, and this is one of my favorite parts, and having favor with all the people. Do you know what that kind of life does? You remember what why Jesus said? He said, I want them to be one just as we are one so that, remember what he said, so that? So that the world will know. In John 13, 34 and 35, I think he says that they will know that you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. There's a theologian that called um, community and the life of believers as the final apologetic. That is, if you're trying to talk with somebody who does not know and believe Jesus, they don't, maybe they don't have anything in common, maybe they don't even believe anything about the Bible whatsoever. It's hard to convince them that this is true if they just don't want to believe it and they don't believe it. But if they see a group of people who are living a a self-sacrificial life and are doing it joyously with a smile on their face, they're not not doing it because they feel compelled to or because a leader told them they have to or somebody's holding it over their head or they're doing it like making sure everybody's looking and can see how much money that they're putting in or that they bought somebody something or did something for somebody because they get check marks from everybody around them, but they're doing it from, it's their joy to do so. It's their worship to God to do so. That is unexplainable except Jesus' love has been spread abroad in their hearts. And that he is exactly who he said he was. And he is the creator of all mankind and the Savior of all mankind. They had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. We can proclaim the gospel, and we have to do that, but the, the oomph, behind sharing the gospel with people is the reality that is echoed in our lives. The fuel, um, I don't want to say the fuel behind the gospel, but the, the thing that, that breaks up like a clipper ship, that breaks up the ice before the gospel is them, people at work, your family, your neighbors, who see you interacting with other people around you and they're like, what is the deal? I don't understand. I don't have a framework to understand how that, how that comes about. Why would they love each other? When the gospel comes, it creates a new birth for each of us. It creates a new set of values and it creates a new culture. We are born into a new family. It's the new birth. It creates a new set of values. That's what we were talking about, the exchange 
that has happened between Jesus and me, my sin for his righteousness, and he takes my sin in return. Like, that's a crazy deal. But that, that exchange that happens changes my values altogether. It changes the way I view people. It changes the way I view possessions. It changes the way I view how do I conduct myself at work? How do I, how do I deal with people at work? How do I deal with people at school, my teachers, my students? It changes all of that because my basis for life has changed. All of life becomes worship. And then it creates a whole new set of, a whole new culture. So if you have a church, um, you have a church of, say, 500 people who are all in different stages, but living out this life, this new life. They're, they have glad and generous hearts. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayer. And then they, they are scattered out through the community. They're teachers, they're policemen, they're bankers, they're, they work at McDonald's, they uh, own small businesses, they are all across the map doing all kinds of things. They are showcasing a new set of a new culture that is here in a preview and is coming in its finality. They're seeing people conduct business, live life, raise their families, be a neighbor according to a set of, cult, a, set of a culture that is not the way this world works now, but is the way this world work, will work when our Lord returns. And that shows them a new reality. So in that way, the church operates like a city within a city. You know when Jesus said that um, you're like a city on a hill? Um, part of what he was talking about was that in the middle of all the darkness, we're living, we're raising families, we're working, we're building, we're doing all of that stuff in the middle of the darkness, but it stands out in stark contrast. That's what gets me so excited about the church. The church, the local church, is the hope of the world. It's the, it's the vehicle that God has chosen to show his glory through. As we live lives like that in community with a whole new set of values and a whole new culture. I'll give you these two last points and then we'll be done. Uh, you can write this down. Uh, I'm not going to read this so long section if you want, if you want to look at it later. But Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 talks about that new identity that we've been given. And I think it's also it's a foundation verse for how we um, for how we should change the way that we view ourselves. Uh, it, this is interesting to me. Nobody that I mean maybe they did, but it doesn't say that anybody had to tell these three thousand new believers. Okay, so there's there's a very limited. There's only twelve apostles. Very limited amount of, of a handful more of people that had been in the upper room. 
And now the church is flooded with 3,000 brand new baby Christians. And we don't have any record that they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to gather here in a big group on Saturday and or it's on Sunday, and we're going we're gonna to worship in a big group here at the temple. And then um, we're going to have a small group ministry, and you guys are going to go over here. And here's what we, you guys need to sing. We need to, we need to get some people that are going to sing. We need to get some people that are going to, that you, you guys need to, you may not know it, but you need to learn. We're going to have to get some classes over here, new believers classes. Here's what is instinctive to new Christians. Worship and community. You don't have to teach a new believer to worship. If they get it, if the coin, if the penny has dropped in their heart and they understand that God has miraculously and against all odds saved them from darkness and has transferred them into light, and once they were not a people and now they are a people, once they were an orphan and now they have been adopted into like the best family on the block, into God's family, how can you not worship? And you want to hang around with other Christians and talk about what has happened. You want to tell them what's happened in your heart and you want them to tell, like, I'm new to this. Tell me what happened. I don't know all that's going on here. They want to hear teaching. They want to hear the Bible explained because they want to hear what God has to say because this is the new, this guy that they have now fallen in love with. They want to hear what he has to say. We need, um, I'm sorry, Christianity means community in and through Jesus Christ, not more or less. We belong to each other only through Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. Christianity means community in and through Jesus Christ, not more or less. There's no concept of a Christianity. There's no concept of a church apart from community, apart from us sharing intimately our lives with each other. That's the only picture that we're given in the New Testament. We need each other because we need Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. Um, when you became a believer, you became a believer because someone either at a, a larger gathering or one-on-one, somebody spoke the gospel to you and you believed. And in that same way, we need each other to speak the word to each other. There's not enough Jesus in you so that you can just like survive all on your own. He has made you to need others. That's why he calls us the body of Christ. He instructs us in Colossians and in Ephesians, Paul does, to speak to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It I don't, I mean, it sounds like he's encouraging us to be in a Disney musical or something, like singing to each other all the time. But the heart of what he's saying is that we need each other to speak the gospel to each other. And we can only come to each other through Jesus. So we need each other because we need Jesus. And we can only be in community with each other through Jesus. Because otherwise, we're just a bunch of leeches that are trying to suck blood from each other all the time. But if we are gaining our life from Jesus Christ, then that enables me to be in close connection with you. Earlier I talked about how my, my behavior, my, my, what I'm doing, 
no longer gives me to stand there. I can be free to be who I really am because I can tell you my jump because I know that my right standing with you and my right standing in the community of believers is not based upon what an awesome guy I am. In fact, the better I know how not awesome I am, the more qualified I am to be a part of the community of believers. And the more qualified I am to grow as a believer. That's how we grow, by the way. It's through repentance and faith. It's not through like becoming a better person. It's through understanding repentance and putting your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what enables us to change anyway. It's not through self-discipline. So let's pray, and then uh, Justin's going to come back up, and we're going to worship. And, uh, Father, I thank you for your goodness and your greatness. I thank you that you have adopted us into a new family, and that as such, that we are brothers and sisters by the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and just like a real, uh, not a real family, just like, just like an earthly family, we don't get to choose our parents, we don't get to choose our siblings, we don't get to choose our family. No, we don't get to choose the other people that you have birthed into your family. We just are brothers and sisters. And I pray that you would fill us with uh, your love, that you would help us to change the way that we think about each other, the way we think about the church, the way we think about my own ability to live life um, on my own. And I pray that you would uh, build into the DNA of, um, of this, this tiny baby that is yet to be birthed and launched. Uh, I pray that you would build into our DNA uh, that we are a community of people who live in community, um, not because we're lonely or because um, somebody said it's a good idea or, or just because the church offers us small groups, but because we recognize that it's the heart of who we are as being a family of God.